0: Well, I want to thank you all for your patience and your flexibility in joining us for uh, church virtually this morning here at Root River Church. Uh, We had a few unfortunate uh, COVID exposures this week, and as a result, uh, we're forced to move our service online not only for today, but you'll also see that for next week as well. But be encouraged to know that everyone is doing well. Uh, We do value and appreciate your continued prayers, and we look forward to joining you together on the Friday, or I'm sorry, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which would be November 28th. But in the meanwhile, I do want to thank you for joining us online, and I want to encourage you uh, to do that again next week, as we will make our way next week into the second chapter of the book of Acts. You'll want to make sure that you participate in that. But I would encourage you to have a Bible or your Bible app ready to go, not only this morning, but also for next week, so that you and your families can follow along as you join us for these virtual messages But today, I'd like to take some time to talk about God's providence in missed opportunity. But before we do that, let's just take a moment to ask God's blessing on our time together this morning, if we could. Father, I thank you so much for your mercy and for your grace. I thank you that you are always enough for us. And in every circumstance of life, your grace is always sufficient. I thank you, Lord, for the technology that allows us to bring the Word of God to the people virtually this morning. And I pray that you would take the little that I have to give you this morning and that you would multiply it to your great honor. So help us today not only to hear the word as it's taught this morning, but, Lord, help us to apply the word as we've heard it. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I think of the greatest missed opportunities of our generation, my mind always goes back to Gary Kildall. Who is Gary Kildall? I'm I'm glad you asked because that's exactly... But the point is this morning, early in his career, Gary Kildall was an instructor in computers at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. But later, he became rather successful developing programming uh, to operate and control computer hardware systems. In fact, uh, in 1974, the company that you know as Intel hired Gary to write programming tools for their processor, their new processor. At the time, it was the Intel 4004 or 4004. Uh, And in 1980, IBM was looking for an operating system for a PC that it would soon release. And of course, they opted to call Gary Kildall. The legend tells us that when three high-level IBM uh, officials showed up to meet with Gary Kildall that day to discuss licensing his operating system for the IBM computer, Kildall blew off the meeting so that he could go flying in his airplane instead. Apparently... Frustrated by Gary Kildall and his lack of attention, the IBM representatives turned to Kildall's rival instead. And this rival had also created an operating system, but it was so similar in design to Gary's that Gary Kildall called this system a copycat. And this copycat became the operating system that propelled Microsoft to its position in the market today. And it was led, of course, by Gary Kildall's rival, Bill Gates, who now has a net worth of about $118 billion. Incredibly frustrated, Gary Kildall eventually drifted into relative obscurity, and eventually in 1994, at the age of 52, Gary died in a brawl in a bar in California. Now, there are those who will say that this legend is simply that. It's just Legend, it's not how the meeting with IBM actually went, but uh, maybe they'll tell you that IBM wanted Kildall to enter into a deal in which he would not receive any of the royalties for his product. Or maybe they would tell you that it was IBM that wanted Kildall to sign a non-compete agreement and he refused to do that. But whatever the the determining factor, IBM wanted to make a deal with Gary Kildall and he did not do it. And now most people would ask you, who is Gary Kildall. But no one is going to ask you who is Bill Gates, are they? Such a huge opportunity right before this man squandered away. And tragic as that missed opportunity was, there's another even greater tragedy. In fact, This missed opportunity was not only the missed opportunity of a lifetime, it was without a doubt the greatest missed opportunity in the history of mankind. And I'd like to share that with you today if I could. But before we do that, I will just remind you that last week in our first study of the book of Acts, we spoke about all that Jesus began to do and all that he began to teach and how the rest of the New Testament is an implementation strategy of the church to finish what Jesus began to do and to teach. Then as he was about to return to heaven, he told his followers to go to Jerusalem and to stay in that city until they received the promised Holy Spirit. So if you want to go in your Bibles now or your Bible apps with me to Acts chapter 1, you can follow along and we're going to begin in verse 12, and it says this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away now, that's just so that you know that's just over a half a mile away and if you're curious uh, About why they call it a Sabbath day journey drop me a line and I'll explain it to you quickly and verse 13 And when they had entered they went up to the upper room where they were staying now houses in those days Commonly had upper rooms which they used for several different purposes here They are likely at the house of John Mark's mother John Mark of course the author of the Gospel of Mark And this must have been a rather large House, We believe they were probably well-to-do, but it was a a rather large house because the upper room, as you will see in just a few moments, was big enough to hold 120 people, but it probably would have been just inside the eastern wall of the city. And the people who were staying there at the command of Christ, waiting for the Holy Spirit, did exactly that. They just sat and they waited. They weren't necessarily just locked away in hiding, but they were likely coming and going from time to time and just waiting there for the promised Holy Spirit. So I want you to see what they were doing while they were waiting. And then if you'll take a look at verse 13, Peter and John and James and Andrew... Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So if you're following along closely, you probably already noticed as we were going through the list. If you were counting the disciples with me, you'd probably notice that there were how many there? There were only 11, weren't there? So we're missing one of the disciples. Who are we missing? Well, it's Judas Iscariot, as you know. And we'll come back to that. Now take a look at verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women uh, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Friends, we could stop at this point and literally teach an entire message around verse 14, which says that they were devoting themselves to prayer together. Consider all that this group of people have been through. Consider that for a moment. Consider all that they'd been through in the last 40 days. I mean, they'd seen their entire world turned upside down, not unlike many of the things that you and I are experiencing in the world today over the last six months. And I don't want at this point to go to, into all the things that converge to completely change not only our lives but their lives. You know them all well, but that's exactly where the disciples were. Think about those things in your lives today. And these disciples were devoting themselves, the word teaches, to prayer together. That's what the chaos had driven them to. And I wonder, if Luke were to chronicle the lives of today's modern church, and he were to write what we were devoting ourselves to, I wonder, would he note that the church of today was devoting themselves to prayer together, as the disciples did in the upper room? I'm not sure. What do you think? Maybe they would say they were devoting themselves to social media. Maybe they were devoting themselves to their work, Maybe they were devoting themselves to their workout routines. Maybe they were devoting themselves to, I don't know, fill in the blanks yourselves. But whatever it is, I'm not sure he'd say today's church was devoting themselves to praying together. I spoke to a pastor recently who told me that He's experiencing more division within his local church body at this present moment than at any other time. And I'm not so sure that I could argue that in the church body as a whole, but I want you to know it is not God's best design for the church. God's design is unity through the Holy Spirit, not factions, not division. May I suggest to you that the church should focus more intently on devoting themselves to prayer together than on social media or any other number of distractions that currently create division in the church. Today, we face the fear of the COVID pandemic. And our response to COVID truly does, it truly does control every aspect of our lives. Because of COVID, we limit our shopping. Because of COVID, we change our work habits. Because of COVID, we limit our church gatherings. Because of COVID, we're being told to limit our family's traditional holiday gatherings. But I think even more stifling to the church than COVID, if I may be so bold, And a problem of greater pandemic proportions to the church is the crisis crisis of prayerlessness in the church. Friends, I am convinced that prayerlessness is far more damaging to today's church and today's church members than the members' views on COVID policy or politics. I'm convinced of that. Consider that for a moment. Examine your prayer life and compare that relative to your social media life. I mean, how does the time you spend in prayer compare to the time you spend on Facebook? How does it compare to the time you spend in front of your computer or in the gym? I am convinced that people will stop attending church more quickly today over its leaders' views on policy and its leaders' views on politics than it will on its leaders' failure to pray. Do you know why? Could it be that it's because the people of the church themselves do not pray and that the people of the church themselves do not properly value prayer? Friends, prayerlessness in my mind is the true pandemic that is destroying the church. But I want to take you back now to verse thirteen, where we see the names of all the disciples who were present. There were Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas the son of James. But not Judas Iscariot, as we mentioned before. I mean, where was he? He had always been with them, hadn't he? He was there in Matthew 10 when Jesus sent the twelve out to proclaim that in verse 7 that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was there with the other eleven as they healed the sick, as they raised the dead, as they cleansed the lepers, and as they cast out demons. Judas Iscariot himself did all of those same things. He was there to pass out the bread and the fish in chapter 14. He was there in the boat as Jesus approached walking on water in Mark chapter 6. He was there to celebrate the last Passover meal with them in the book of John. He was the treasurer of the group. He kept the money bag. He tended to the finances. He was very well trusted. So where was he right now? Well, take a look at verse 15, and this is what it says. In those days, as they were all committing themselves, just so that you know, as they were all committing themselves to prayer in the upper room, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers... The company of the persons was in all about 120, and Peter said, "'Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allocated his share in this ministry.'" So as we've just seen, he was one of them. He was active among the disciples. He was active in his place of ministry. He was as well regarded and trusted among the 12 as any were. He ate with them. He lived with them. And as Peter recalls, he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, thus betraying him and the remainder of the 12. Now, Matthew tells us in chapter 27 that when Judas saw that Jesus had been handed over to Pontius Pilate to be condemned, he was filled with remorse, the Bible says. And so he went to the temple, and he approached the chief religious leaders and attempted to give the silver pieces back that he had taken. And when the leaders refused to take the money back, Judas took the money and he threw it into the temple and he ran away. The religious leaders, of course, always wanting to keep a view of of piety and to, to look as though they were pious and concerned about doing the right thing. They said, well, it's not right for us to take this money and to put it back into the treasury because this is blood money, of course. So rather than take the money and put it back into the temple treasury, the Bible tells us that they took the 30 pieces of silver and they bought the potter's field, which they would use to bury strangers. And the field became known as the field of blood. Well, Judas took off running. And overcome with guilt, Judas hanged himself. But there's more that we need to see to get the full picture of what happened to Judas. Take a look at verse 18. It says, Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle so that all of his boughs gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a kalama, that is, the field of blood. So people will ask, which is it? Did Judas hang himself or did Judas fall headlong and burst open in the middle? And the answer is both. That's what happened. Both of those things happened. Judas hanged himself, and then at some point, either the branch or the rope broke, leaving his body to fall headlong to the ground and burst open. I mean, how tragic. This man who was in the inner circle of the living God, This man who was so well-trusted among the inner circle that he was in charge of the money and the finance, the treasury. This one who had lived in intimate closeness with Jesus Christ, hearing the incredibly powerful teaching and witnessing all the accompanying miracles was now lying burst open in the potter's field. This one who had the promise of sitting on one of the twelve thrones in heaven judging the twelve tribes of Israel had lost it all. He had traded indescribable eternal blessing for 30 pieces of silver and for eternal torment. He was out and he had to be replaced. And Peter said in verse 21 So one of the men who have accompanied us during uh, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of those men must become uh, with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. So Peter outlines for us here in verses 21 through 23 the prerequisites for participating in apostolic ministry. Now, when you understand this, you will know why there is no such thing as apostolic succession. First, we should understand that the word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, which is from the Greek verb apostello, which simply means to send out or to send forward. An apostle, then, in the truest sense of the word, is someone who is sent out or sent forward. Now, technically, in the most basic sense of the word, all believers, all of you today, are apostles simply by virtue of the great commission in which Christ himself tells us that we are to go into all the world to teach the gospel. But there is another use of the word apostle, which refers to the office of the original twelve disciples upon whom the church would be built. <clears throat> everyone is sent, that is true, but not everyone holds apostolic office. Peter tells us that those founders of the church, the original twelve, must be people who meet some qualifications. First, according to verse 21, they needed to have been physically with Jesus for the entirety of his ministry, from beginning to end. Secondly, they had to be witnesses to his resurrection, which is to say that they must have seen Jesus in his post-resurrection physically resurrected bodily form. So the test then for those who claim some form of apostolic or authoritative succession from the original 12 must prove that they were not only present with Christ at his ministry for the entirety of his ministry, but they must also prove then that they have physically seen the post-resurrection form of Jesus Christ. And of course, we know that that doesn't apply to anyone today. That's not true of anyone today. So Matthias... And a guy with several names, I love this, Joseph Justice Barsabbas. They met the qualifications, and Matthias of the two was chosen. Now with the 12th apostle in place to have replaced Judas, the table was set and the church was ready for its birth. And it was time for the work that Jesus began to be completed. And next week we're going to see that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the church would spring forward to life. Judas was gone. He'd squandered the greatest opportunity ever known to mankind. He had betrayed God. Whatever his motivation, whatever caused it, he had thrown it all away. Maybe he was so greedy that he couldn't resist the payoff of the 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't that 30 pieces of silver was a huge amount of money. It would have been the equivalent of 120 days' pay. Imagine four months of your pay for you to hand over the incarnate God to be tortured and crucified. That's what it took for him. Maybe it was something else. I don't know. Maybe uh, he could have had, uh, for sure, he could have had eternal riches and glory in the kingdom of God. Yet, in spite of his decision, the work of God was right on track. God knew from the very beginning of time that Judas would betray Jesus Christ, and he worked his will through the decisions of Judas. Judas. One of the characteristics of God, which is most awe-inspiring to me, I think, is His providence. The word providence comes from the Greek word pronoia, which is a compound word meaning to perceive before. I want you to hang with me through this. Pronoia, to perceive before. It can be thought of as foresight or foreknowledge. And it's amazing to me that God has the foresight to perceive before they happen. Think of this. He has the foresight to perceive before they happen all the decisions, all the choices of every single individual to have ever existed through the entire timeline of humanity and somehow work His will through all of those choices. Isn't that amazing? It's encouraging to me to know that God works His will through the good decisions and the bad decisions of man having had the foresight to discern what those choices would be from the very beginning. He's in complete control over every event, and he takes the individual acts of every single person's free will and their free choice, and he uses those acts to accomplish his purposes. That's what he did through Judas. Judas chose on his own to betray Jesus Christ. But God used that choice providentially to complete his plan of salvation and to move Matthias into the place of Judas as a disciple. So friends, as I close this morning, can I just encourage you with something? May I just encourage you with the knowledge that you have not escaped the the notice. You have not escaped the knowledge and the purpose of God. The decisions that you have made in your life, both good and bad, God will use to perfectly fit into His will. The Things that we're going through right now, I want you to know, fit perfectly into the providential superintendence of God. Friends, did you know that God wasn't surprised by COVID? in His providence, in His pronoia, it works perfectly into the plan of God. I can't imagine how this can work to the world's advantage. I just know that it does. I know that God's got a handle on it, and I can rest based on that, knowing that God is able to direct COVID, even COVID to His own purposes, even to His own value and to his own, ultimately to our own benefit. And I also want you to know that when the dust finally settles on the election and when all the lawsuits and recounts and all of the, all of the accompanying distractions are finally gone and we've got a certified winner, God will not, be dis- will not be surprised by the ultimate outcome. One way or another, there are going to be people who don't approve But we can all rest knowing that God will direct it to His purposes. He will direct it to His purposes, friends. As for us, let's commit ourselves to prayer. As for us, may we never find that we, like Judas, have squandered away opportunity for closeness. With him, Father, I thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy. I thank you that you are sovereignly in control of our circumstances today. And Lord, if there are people watching this morning who, like Judas, are in danger of squandering away the opportunity of an eternal life spent with you, I pray that you would grant it to them this morning to believe that they may call out on your name and that they may be saved. I ask, God, that you would burden those of us who watched this morning to be a church committed to prayer. I ask that you would stir our hearts to committed time alone with you and that you would bring unity to the body of Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I want to thank you again for participating with us this morning. As always, I want to encourage you to do your best to stay engaged right here at Root River Church to whatever extent you're you're able to do that. Uh, Just a reminder that for the next two weeks now until uh, Sunday, November 28th, uh, we will be meeting online only. And I also want to thank you for your committed and continued faithful giving. I want to encourage you to continue to do that. Um, We do still maintain all of our our financial responsibilities, and that's in thanks to your faithful giving. So I want to thank you for that, and I want to just remind you that you can give by going online to rootriverchurch.com. You can also give by mailing your gift to P.O. Box 321113 right here in Franklin. So thank you so much for your continued faithful and generous giving. Please know that Beth and I will continue to pray for you and your families over these coming, uh, these coming days until we get back together as a church body one more time. We love you and we look forward to worshiping with you again soon. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. God bless you. Have a great afternoon.